News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So this morning, we're going to start out by talking about gaming. I think there are some misconceptions when it comes to gaming. I mean, for one, I think there we think that it's socially isolating. Oh, you're just sitting inside. You're not socializing. Oh, you're not learning any social skills, right? Like that's the perception that we have. But that may have been the case, you know, way back when, but not necessarily anymore. Technology has changed a lot of things, including gaming and how we make social connections. Joining us now to talk about this is Dr. Rachel Coward, who's a research psychologist and co-author of the book, A Parent's Guide to Video Games. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to this. It's the essential guide to understanding how video games impact your child's physical, social and psychological well-being. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So are you saying that gaming actually can be social? <laughs> yes, you know, it's more social than anti-social, actually. Really? In what way? Well, you know, even when we're playing alone, um, we're playing what we call alone together. So most games now are connected through the Internet in one way or another, either through the console, like through the Xbox or the PlayStation, or you're playing in a world populated by lots of other people. So we're constantly engaging in this broader community of game players, even when seemingly we seem to be playing alone. So, Dr. Cowan, I think, do we have enough, do you think, qualitative data now when it comes to like seeing what the impact of gaming is on our social skills because it's been going on for, what, 20, 30 years now extensively? Yeah, you know, closer to 50. It's wild how long we've been playing games. But yes, absolutely. So actually, my PhD research looks specifically at social skills and social abilities. And overwhelmingly, we find there's no differences between people who play games and people who don't. And if anything, the people who are playing online games are developing what we call 21st century skills. So the ability to hold multiple conversations about different topics at the same time, for instance. Okay, so we're learning how to multifunction, to to do all sorts of different things at once. Yeah, yeah. See, games can be good. (laughs) It sounds to me like you are used to trying to convince some parents of this. (laughs) You know, I, I do tend to end up on that side of the, the street, not necessarily because um, I because I chose to, but more out of necessity. You know, as you mentioned in the opening, games have a bad reputation for being bad or having overwhelming negative effects. And generally across the board on all outcomes, it's more positive than negative. Okay, so what about what it shows us about a person's personalities or how they deal with challenging situations? Yeah, you know, games are really great kind of testing ground to see how people do handle challenging situations and how they can develop resilience and how they can continue to try in the face of failure. And there's a lot of psychologists, for instance, who use this in their clinical practice to do just that. So what do you say to help parents with this then? When parents come to you and say, I'm really worried about how much time my child spends gaming, where do you go from there? Great. It's great. I hear that question a lot. Um, Typically, I tend to say, think about it as a digital diet. So just like we have a food pyramid, games should be one of many things that we do on our digital diet. Should it be the only thing we do? No. But there are a lot of benefits to be had from it. So for parents, I just say, think about what function it's serving. Are they playing with friends that they know? Are Are they learning and exploring? You know, are they getting a sense of achievement? They do have value within this pyramid of the digital technologies we use. Does it also depend on which game they're playing? 
Um, it can, but but all games of all genres really do have their own kind of individual value. So, like, a lot of people are concerned about uh, first-person shooter games, for instance, but there's something to be said about teamwork and working together in, in a rapid, you know, pace environment. But every child is different and every parent is different. It's just about, you know, keeping an eye on what your child is playing and making sure you're comfortable with it. Okay, and what what about the idea, too, that this the current generation of parents who have very small children or perhaps becoming parents – wouldn't they have also grown up playing video games? Yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of us have. I mean, I, I'm 40, I have small children, and I definitely grew up playing games, but shockingly, not everyone. <laughs> so, I mean, I have some close neighbors who I love and adore the same age as me, but they know nothing about these spaces. So I'm like, just talk to them, just see what they're doing. They can be good, I promise. Um, right. so it seems, it could us. be overwhelming, I think, for parents who have yeah. never done that, though, because when you look at what's going on, some of these games are very complex. Like, I have sat and watched... Yeah. And I think I and I grew up playing video games, but like yeah. we're talking Atari. So I don't think I can't keep up with what I see happening. Absolutely. It, it can be overwhelming. And I understand the kind of the hesitancy to engage because they can be overwhelming. But really just sit down next to your child and be like, what are you playing and why do you like it? And you can really just start there. Okay, so the key here, I take it then, is to view video game skills as you would any other life skill. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So what kind of skills are we talking about here? What are, what are they learning? Yeah. I mean, they're learning leadership skills. They're learning multitasking. As we mentioned before, you know, these 21st century social skills, the ability to socialize verbally and via text about different conversations at the same time. Um, Games also are fun. You know, people forget like they're actually a fun thing to do and doing something fun and playful in and of itself is associated with stress relief and reduced depression and, and all these kinds of different things. Right. Um, I know you've also talked about the issue of how we get to know people, right? So when we meet them in person, we get to know them a certain way, but we get to know them kind of backwards. Is that right? On, on the in gaming? Yeah, exactly. So friendships formed in games tend to form faster and be closer um, than friendships formed in other spaces of the internet, because just as you said, they're formed backwards. So in a face-to-face relationship, you meet someone and you slowly learn if you can trust them. But on the internet, in games specifically, you learn if you can trust them right away. Are you going to help me kill this monster or are you going to not help me kill this monster, right? And if you help me, I immediately have a foundational level of trust in which I then build upon and I get to know you over time. Um, So it's quite interesting to study how these friendships form and how they can be so long lasting. Okay, that's so interesting because you're right. Why does it? Why do we do it that way, though, then? Is it because that's just the immediacy? We take so long to get to know people in person, don't we? Well, we do. I mean, that's just the human nature, right? We're not sure. Can we trust this person? Is this person trustworthy? I mean, it's just the way that human relationships form. And I think it's because you don't usually open with like a trust building exercise, right? Um, But with games, games are nothing but a series of trust building exercises. So someone can show it before they express it, you know, with words. So what do you say to parents then when they think, oh, gaming is so isolating? It is not. It's so not isolating. And I get the impression, you know, if you see your child in a room with headphones on by themselves, seemingly in a room, right, I can see how you get that impression. But keep in mind that they're connected to a world of hundreds, thousands, millions of other people playing games. It is not isolating at all. Right. They're just developing relationships. You just can't see that. Correct. All right. It sounds like we all have a little bit of work to do on that one. Uh, Thank you for your time this morning. 
Oh, thank you for having me. That is Dr. Rachel Carrot, who's a research psychologist and has also written a book. It's the co-author, actually, of a book called A Parent's Guide to Video Games, The Essential Guide to Understanding How Video Games Impact Your Child's Physical, Social, and Psychological Well-Being. And I know as a parent, we've all thought that at some point, right? That, oh, video games, oh, get outside and play, do something more social. But their argument is that it is social. It's just developing relationships differently, probably faster than you would face-to-face, which I find fascinating. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it sounds like things are going to be changing this morning when it comes to the strike by federal public service workers. Now, if you thought that so far this labor dispute hadn't really impacted you, well, that might change because up until now, those picket lines have been confined to government buildings and other kind of related locations. This morning, those locations are likely to change to more strategic ones, such as ports. Yeah. So Jamie Mills joins us now, the Regional Executive Vice President of BC's Public Service Alliance of Canada. Good morning, Jamie. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. Well, thanks for being here. So what is going to be happening today? Well, I think you're going to start seeing escalating actions coast to coast to coast by PSAC members. Uh, Quite frankly, we're extraordinarily frustrated that we are now on day four of picketing. uh, And I'm with a large group of our agriculture members here working for the Canadian Green Commission, uh, where we've put a picket line up at the Cascadia Terminal. Okay, so you're saying this could more impact perhaps not letting trucks out? Like, where are these picket lines going to go up? Well, it's one picket line, and it's uh, stopping everyone from going into the Viterra Terminal here at Cascadia. Okay. So, uh, they, are, they are letting managers through, but I think other unions are, are very strongly supporting our picket line here today. And how long will that picket line be there for? As long as it needs to be. Okay, so that is kind of like the new location then? That could be one of the new locations, absolutely. Okay, and so what, how would you characterize what happened on the weekend, Jamie, in terms of negotiations? So I, I think it's been quite frank what our national president has said. Uh, we proposed a, a, a new comprehensive package on Thursday. The government did nothing but drag their feet. Uh, we waited all day Friday for a response and got nothing. Uh, and then they came to us minutes before we started a press conference on Saturday saying they're ready to come back. So we're going back. Our teams are ready, willing, and able, uh, and we're, hope, we're hoping to, to get a, a, a fair agreement for our members as soon as possible. Okay, so there is still discussion going on then? Uh, 100%, but we are still waiting for the employer to come back with a new mandate. Uh, unfortunately, there are still a few sticking points, wages being one of them. Okay, and what is the mood like, Jamie, on the picket lines? I heard Mark say that there's going to be some sun today, so people are jovial. Uh, I mean, they're as happy as they can be, but they're still so frustrated with this employer. Uh, morale is high, spirits are high. Yeah, I was reading about this as well on the weekend, is that you know, a lot of times it's, it, it helps to have the support, perhaps, of the public, but how do you feel like how the public has weighed in on this? Uh, I would say that the public has been very supportive of us. Uh, we, we have seen some, uh, service, some polling, some surveys come out. Uh, and for the most part, the public is very much behind us. Uh, you know, we're not asking for too much, especially with our wage demand. 13.5% over three years really just keeps up with inflation. It's only asking for enough, enough to pay our bills, enough to put groceries on the table, and enough to put a roof over our heads. Okay, and what was it like with the other picketing that was going on there? So that, did that slow down work that was being done in government offices? Last week, uh, that slowdown is still happening. Uh, so, yeah, I would say uh, all, all departments and agencies uh, that have members on strike are definitely feeling that. Okay, it certainly sounds like it's quite active out there this morning. Yeah, I apologize. I'm on the road today, so you can hear members behind me. 
<laughs> no, that tells us exactly what is going on there. So uh, once again, tell us where you are today, Jamie. What's going to be happening? We are currently right down by uh, New Brighton Park at the uh, Cascadia Terminal at Viterra. And I wouldn't be surprised if you saw us at a federal minister's office later this morning. So it sounds like things are ramping up. Things are ramping up. Absolutely. Like I said, our members are frustrated and we're going to keep taking the actions we need to uh, to encourage the member to come back to the table with a respectful mandate. All right, Jamie, thanks so much for the update. Simi, thank you for having us or having me. That is Jamie Mills, Regional Executive Vice President of BC's Public Servants Alliance of Canada. So this is, of course, part of the ongoing strike of more than 150,000 public service workers right across the country. And so they did kind of negotiate on and off on the weekend. And as you heard, they are intending to go back to the table with the federal government and do some more negotiating. But they're kind of ramping things up today, want to have more of an impact. So last week, those picket lines were mainly outside of government buildings, right? So don't try to get a passport right now because you're likely not going to. I know that they've got some essential service levels uh, that obviously are in place, but when you think about the time of year it is right now, you can imagine that that has a lot more to do with making sure people's uh, taxes are processed uh, than making sure that there are passports being issued. So all of that is kind of on a bit of a slowdown. So they decided to ramp things up today and they will be picketing other locations. So what we just heard there, very noisy in the background, and that is because uh, those Public Service Alliance of Canada workers are now moving on the picket line at Cascadia Terminals down by New Brighton Park. And that means if other, you know, uh, unions respect that picket line, then you could see a slowdown in other locations. So we'll keep you posted on how that goes. But um, doesn't sound like they are any really closer to making that deal. I know there's been a lot of pressure on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, there are still lots of questions about what is going on with the whole decampment process along Hastings in Vancouver. I mean, has it actually worked? Where have the people who were there gone? I mean, not all of them have gone into housing. I mean, certainly those options are not available. I think one of the things that has really shone a light with this story is the types of housing that actually are available and even really what the definition is of things like supportive housing. Because it's all well and good to say, well, someone is being provided supportive housing or they need supportive housing. But what does it actually mean? Well, Frances Bula has been writing about this in the Globe and Mail newspaper. She's been looking into this issue and she joins us now to talk about it. Good morning, Frances. Hey, Sammy. Is there a definition actually for what supportive housing means? Well, I mean, in theory, what it means is not just housing, but some kind of staff or services on the site uh, to help people with uh, various issues they might have. Usually not medical, usually medical is a visiting team, but having staff available to um, either prepare food or help people figure out how to cook, to help people get, um, you know, government ID back, uh, to help them navigate um, the social services system, uh, all kinds of things like that. Uh, and there is no set definition of how much that should be, in part because it depends on who is in a particular building. Uh, and I've heard various kinds of staffing levels, but what it isn't is putting people in housing and just having someone 
check them in and out. Right. Like that's not supportive housing. And unfortunately, sometimes there are some buildings that are like that, that really that's about all the support that anyone gets. Okay. So what have you found in looking into this? Well, I was very lucky in having someone who runs uh, the largest uh, uh, number of, of supportive or housing uh, operations on Vancouver Island, uh, Carolina Ibera from um, Pacifica. And uh, it can mean a really wide range of things. And, um, you know, because of what happened on Hastings Street, I think some people have the impression that's all that is, is available is some terrible shelter ridden with bed bugs or a terrible residential right. hotel room that's just as bad. And there are some places like that. Uh, but there's also this huge range of other things like construction trailer type camps that have loads of supports or construction trailer type camps that have no supports or very little, very minimal old motels, old hotels. And then, you know, a lot of actually relatively new supportive housing buildings that are beautiful and look like apartments that fit into the neighborhood. Uh, and you wouldn't notice anything too unusual about them. Right. But I guess, is it the hard part then one finding out where these all are and how to get into them? I mean, for people who are on the street, there's a lot of outreach going on and people are trying different methods. I have to say the thing that really struck me as I was covering this story and have been covering it for a while is how things are just evolving on the fly because, um, you know, supportive housing, we really didn't talk about it 10 or 15 years ago. And now yeah. it's like all anyone talks about it. What does it mean? What is the staffing level? Where is it? Um, how do you get into it? And so on. Um, so there's all these different mechanisms. There are things called allocation tables in every community where BC Housing, someone from maybe the health authority and the nonprofit housing providers will get together and figure out who should go where. Um, in Victoria, apparently there is an outreach team that goes right out into the street and tries to assess people in the street. They don't say you have to go to a shelter before we'll even talk to you. They assess people right out in the street. And sometimes we'll say, you know, we think you can function in a nice, uh, you know, studio apartment with a fridge and stove and bathtub. Other people, they'll say, you know, this person needs help to get back to functioning somewhat normally. So they're better off in a, a kind of a more secure facility, maybe fewer services, not quite as nice, but lots of support. That's the ideal. I mean, obviously the thing that's been a bit of an issue for I'd say the last decade is governments of both kinds have tried to persuade the public that they're solving homelessness by just producing a, a whole bunch of units of housing. Right. And not too many questions have been asked about, well, you know, what kinds of supports are you providing for people in that? Because I have seen new buildings that are run really well. People are supported. They're stable. They feel like they have a home. And I've seen buildings that are terrible because, again, if you just have someone at the front desk checking people in and out and there's just no staff in spite of their best efforts, um, you're going to have a certain level of chaos for sure. Yeah. Have you, were you able to find examples where this is working well? Uh, well, the place that I visited in Nanaimo, Nikau, which is run by um, uh, Pacifica, it has loads of support, like 25 staff for 66 units or something like that, plus casuals. 
And they have to fight to get that. It's not something that BC Housing offers up necessarily at, <laughs> in the first go. They had to fight to get that. And, and, and it's not the most attractive looking place. Like it's construction camp trailers on a parking lot you know, in a parking lot behind yeah. a chain link fence in an industrial zone. So it's not pretty, but there's a lot of support. They get two meals a day. They get a lunch if they need it. They have someone who helps them figure out how to get to their medical appointments. There's a doctor or some kind of health team that comes in once a week. They get connected with social services and people really stabilize. Like, you know, I didn't put this in my story, but there is a man who's had, he was a serial you know, criminal, like every, he, he told me himself, I, every two years I was in jail, I'd, I'd be in jail for a year and get out, commit a bunch of crimes, be back in again. He hasn't had a conviction since um, he's been there. I'm not sure how many years it is. And he was just the most delightful person. He recited poetry to me and, and sections from Shakespeare and just seemed like the happiest person, wow. honestly. Okay. I know it was incredible. So um, so yeah, there is this huge range, and but if they're fairly confident that with most people, if they can get them in and provide real services, not just like put them in a room and say you're on your own now, but real services, people can really stabilize. Not everyone. I mean, every place I talk to, they still have to evict some people uh, because they just do not have the capacity to deal with the the level of violence or dysfunction or behavioral dysfunction. Yeah. It is fascinating. Uh, thanks so much for that, Francis. Yeah, and uh, really, we should thank the nonprofit housing providers who let me and, and other reporters barge in and, and see the work <laughs> they're doing. You barge in? Never, <laughs> never. Francis, thanks for that. Okay, thank you. That's Frances Bueller. She's the Urban Issues and City Politics contributor for the Globe and Mail newspaper, and she's been doing a lot of work on this issue of supportive housing, and you should definitely check it out because it's an in-depth look at what it really means to provide supportive housing. You hear about that, like, and that is not coming to my neighborhood? Well, that uh, that is what it means. So check it out at theglobeandmail.com. This is Mornings with Simi. So Campbell River is trying again. The city is proposing a ban on the public consumption of drugs in what they're calling high-use zones and areas that are frequented by children, families, and tourists. So this proposed bylaw would prohibit drug consumption within 15 meters of playgrounds, of sports fields, water parks, skate parks, things like that. Now, they tried to do something similar a few months ago. You probably remember we talked about it on the show at the time. But at that time, it was a ban on city property is what they were proposing there. And that one didn't work because it was thought to negatively impact public health initiatives. So they thought, okay, back to the drawing board. Now they're going to reword this and try again. And Campbell River isn't alone here either. Several other communities would like to try the same thing. The argument being, if you can limit where alcohol is publicly consumed, why not drugs? So joining us now to talk about this is Kevin Falcon, leader of the opposition for BC United. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks very much for having me. Do you support communities doing this? Very much so. Uh, in fact, when the, you know, just a little context here. Back in 2020, when the NDP decided that they were going to go forward to fast-track decriminalization of, you know, hard drugs like heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, crack, meth, etc., they, for two and a half grams or less, they went to the federal government to get an exemption from the criminal code. And the federal government provided it, but they also provided a letter 
um, uh, a letter of recommendations to say, okay, here are some guardrails that you'll want to put around this uh, before you, in, you know, go forward and in, institutionalize this. And unfortunately, many of those guardrails are not in place. And that included making sure you take into account the needs of all the various communities out there who will have legitimate concerns. And this is certainly one of them. So now we have a situation, and I hear this from the police all the time, as recently as in Surrey on the weekend, where the police now uh, can go into a park if somebody's drinking alcohol, even if they have, uh, depending on the community, are using plastic straws, they've got the ability through bylaws to be able to say, nope, you've got to move along. You can't be doing this in a playground or a beach or a park. Uh, But if they pull out their heroin or cocaine or, or hard drugs, they can do it uh, without the police or bylaws having any ability to do anything about it. And the worst part, it's it's not just, so that doesn't make any sense. And what we said to the government is, for God's sakes, at least put in a province-wide provision that says no open drug use in parks, playgrounds, or beaches. They refuse to do that. And not only that, as you say, they push back against communities trying to pass bylaws. And then David Eby's old friends at Pivot Legal Society also weigh in to threaten to sue And uh, to me, this just makes no sense. Okay, so then how do you word it so that you still want to make sure the people who need help get help, right? That you're not interfering with their ability to get health care, like a city-owned property, which is what the problem they had in Campbell River. How do you word it so that it still has an impact? Well, I think you just word it very clearly to say there will be uh, no open drug use of uh, drugs in parks, playgrounds, or beaches. Uh, across the province of British Columbia. I mean, uh, you know, the, they can wordsmith it, but there's good people that do that. But the point is that we as a society have to say that we ought to be focusing our primary attention, to your point, Simi, about helping these folks get treatment and recovery. And by the way, that's not available too. And that was one of the guardrails that's supposed to be in place, that there would be readily available treatment and recovery. Right now, it is far from readily available. So why does this matter? Let me just give you an example. And over on in Nanaimo that has already been struggling with total chaos uh, and, and social disorder as a result of the public supply of addictive drugs and this government's policies. Um, there was a young girl, Everly, at her elementary school who brought home a packet of fentanyl to her mother, and her mother, Andrea Miller, was just horrified uh, to find out that he, she was walking around carrying this fentanyl that could have killed her and probably every other kid in that playground had they ingested it. So there's got to be reasonable... Uh, provisions in place to make sure we protect public gathering areas. Okay, what about enforcement on this? Because you can ticket people until the cows come home, but if they're not going to pay those tickets, like what is? how do you actually enforce this? Well, the problem is there's no enforcement ability at all right now. So as the police said to me, they said, look, and, and I've said this before too, look, we were always skeptical about decriminalization, but, you know, uh, the committee members that we had on the health committee said, Uh, on page 48 of the report, look, if the proper guardrails are in place, okay, see how it goes and and, uh, make sure you keep proper, you know, statistics, et cetera, to see that we don't end up as they did in Portland, Oregon, with a 39% uh, increase in overdose deaths as a result of decriminalization. That was one year later. So, you know, um, the police right now face a real problem. They have no ability to do anything. And before, they could use their own judgment. And many times, if not most times, they would leave people openly using drug use, et cetera, alone, unless they were in a schoolyard or park or playground or on the beaches. But now that that provision's been taken from them, they don't have anything they can do. So they have to have something that they can at least act on. And why the government wouldn't 
say this is a reasonable limit on people's ability to openly use drugs is is just beyond me. Okay, so is it finding people we're talking about? Is it getting them to move along? Like, how how do you enforce something like this then? Well, it typically can start with a fine, but usually, uh, more likely, they can just say, hey, listen, you know that open drug use, you're not going to be doing heroin here. Move along. And they'll move them out of there. And and that's that's important to have that ability to do so. Uh, because, you know, mothers with kids at a playground shouldn't have to be worrying about, you know, someone openly using drugs right next to them. And and look, I just have to say, by the way, I, you know, I've been speaking to some of the top medical doctors that specialize in addiction. And, you know, increased exposure to drugs is not a good thing. When you, exp- when you have more and more drug use and exposure of drug use, it does not send the right message to kids and impressionable teenagers. And we cannot forget that. That is a fundamental um, thing that we've learned, uh, you know, through all the different alcohol and all the different kinds of drug use. It's a tough situation, though, isn't it? Because nobody, we don't, we want to make sure people get help if they need help. But also, the current situation in some communities is is too much for people to deal with. Well, it is. And look, uh, you know, when we brought forward our mental health and addiction plan, we called it better as possible. And what we said is that we were going going to have the primary focus, not the public supply of addictive drugs, but rather the total focus on helping people get better through treatment and recovery. That would be the primary effort of government with purpose-built facilities that people can stay up to a year um, dealing with the, the drug addiction issues. I mean, we've got a situation in March, just in March alone. So remember, last year was the worst rate of overdose deaths we've ever had in British Columbia history. And it's been the worst every year for the last seven years. So um, in March, we had 19 days, 19 straight days where there were over 100 overdoses a day in Vancouver alone. Um, we, we, you know, you can't, we can't have this. When, when things are getting worse and the number of overdose deaths are going up, continuing to do more of the same thing and, in fact, expanding that effort is not going to change the results. That's what really concerns me, Sydney. Okay, so you think Campbell River is on the right track here? You think other communities should do this? Absolutely. It's not just Campbell River, Kamloops. Uh, Sycamus, uh, Kelowna, there's a whole bunch of communities that want this to be dealt with. And the problem is uh, they're getting pushback from the government saying, no, we don't want you doing this. Wait six months so we can see what the results are. Why would we wait six months uh, and allow complete open drug use throughout our communities, especially in parks, playgrounds and beaches? What, What possible positive benefit can we get out of that? It just makes no sense to me. All right. Well, so thanks very much for your time on that. Thanks for having me, Sydney. That's Kevin Falcon, a leader of the opposition for BC United, talking about Campbell River proposing this bylaw uh, to ban consumption of drugs or having drug use within 15 metres of playground, sports fields, water parks, skate parks, things like that. They tried earlier to do this, but they had said city property. And there was concerns raised that, well, if you do that, then is it going to stop people from getting help if they need to go into some health facilities that are city property, that kind of thing. So now they're rewording it and trying again. And there are other communities who think this is a good idea too, that they would like to do this. Now, would you support that if your community did something like that? Or do you think that, well, maybe we should wait and see how these latest policies take effect first before we do that? Uh, you know what? We, we regulate the consumption of alcohol in public places. Should we apply those same rules here? This is Mornings with Simi. 
Let's talk about history, shall we? Like the time, our next guest became the first woman in Canada to play and score in an NCAA football game. That's amazing, right? It was only two years ago. Christy Elliott was the only woman on SFU's varsity football team to make that cut. But now she, like all the other players, are wondering what is going to happen to them with the abrupt cancellation a few weeks ago now of the entire program. Now, this week, this is going to go to court. There's an injunction that is going to try to be filed. Uh, There's all sorts of other things going on. But we thought, let's uh, talk to Christy about how it's been the last little while. Christy Elliott is with us now, kicker for the SFU football team. Good morning, Christy. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, how are you doing? I'm I'm okay. It's been a crazy last couple of weeks with everything going on on the football team, that's for sure. Now, Lots- let me ask you. You at first you you hadn't actually kicked a football until 2019, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And then what happened at that point because it feels like a lot of things happened very quickly. Yeah, so my first time kicking a football was because of a bet that I had. Back in 2019, I went for it, ended up getting the 40-yard field goal, sent the video to the coach. The coach saw it, and he's like, this is pretty good. Like, I'm impressed. And ended up going out to Trout to the team, and I made the cut. And then two years later, became starting kicker for the team and played my first game in 2021. That must have been amazing. Yeah, it was unreal feeling, stepping onto the field for the first time. It was great that's for sure did what was it like to be welcomed into that SFU football program I was surprised with how welcoming everyone was just because people didn't know who I was and there was all this stuff about oh she's just here for publicity but I think once my teammates saw how um, committed and dedicated I was to the team and how I was actually here to be an asset to the team, like right away, I became best friends with all of these 100 guys. That's amazing. So has it been like that the last couple of years? You were still on the team. Yeah, I think the more I was on the team and just got to learn um, with everyone and grow and go through all these different hardships, uh, we definitely became closer. And as I like also became older and got to a senior position on the team, I was I felt like I was more respected and just yeah, all the guys right now are like my brothers. It's actually crazy to say. It's like, yeah, I'm going to have these, these friendships forever. Chrissy, how did you find out about the cancellation of the program? Yeah, so I actually just start. I just actually started a position on the team um, as the director of football operations. So I just finished my last season this past December. So I was like, I love this team so much. I want to stick around. So um, the head coach got me on board on his coaching staff and I got an email from the athletic director on a random Monday afternoon saying there was an important meeting that I had to attend the next day, the following Tuesday. So I went to her office, so did all the other coaches. We had meetings 10 minutes apart and I sat down and it was her and the um, vice president of the school and I got the news then and there saying that they've tried all the possible routes for the football program but unfortunately they have to terminate the program so I found out on a random Tuesday morning and then about 45 minutes later the rest of my team found out oh my goodness so up until that point Christy had there been any indication that this was happening no we were completely blindsided I like vividly remember that 
Monday when we got the news about having a meeting, all our coaching staff were all sitting there eating lunch together, wondering, we were thinking it was going to be really exciting news. Like we had no idea that it was going to be the end of the program. So yeah, we were completely blindsided. And so since that happened, what kind of support, if anything, has the school offered? Like what has this transition been like? Um, the transition has been very difficult. Um, just from an outside source too of like, watching all my friends and teammates go through this transition of the uncertainty and not knowing what their next steps are. It's been really hard. The school has granted us lots of um, access to services still and support. Like we have a really great mental health sports psychologist counselor at the school. So he's been helping us as well. Um, but this, the biggest support comes from outside of um, SFU and the community. The football community has been amazing we have so many great people that are supporting us. Like number one is the SFU football alumni. Like I never realized how much these people support us until the situation happened. And to see the football community come together from all across Canada and even from the States just to support us. It's been really amazing to see. Do you think there's a way forward? Like, do you think it's possible for the team to keep playing? Well, we have 95 guys on the roster right now that want to play football. So we're pushing through this. If the injunction goes through, we will have our 2023 season um, with a full roster, a full set of coaching staffs. And I think our program will come back even better and stronger because of this. Now, I'd love to hear that, Christy. That's amazing. What, how do you, what do you say to people who go, oh, it's just football. It's not that big of a deal. Like, how do you explain to people how important this is? Yeah, I guess if you don't play sports, it might seem like this is not a big deal. But I think for me, like, football changed my life. Like, I didn't realize how much of an impact it would have on my life until stepping onto that field. Like, not only is it a fun sport to play, but it gave me so many life skills, like confidence, communication, teamwork, just, like, bonding with people and going through such a different, diverse experiences with all these different people. It's like we're a family, and I'm assuming every other football team, every other athletic team, sports team at university, or just recreation thinks the same way, too. We're just all a big family. Are, are you hopeful that something's going to get done here? Oh, yeah, I'm very, very, very hopeful. We do have a lot, like I said before, a lot of support and a lot of people that have our back, and we do have some really powerful people working with us. And, like, we're doing a fundraiser, I think, in – in two days uh, with the BC Lions and the BC Lions owners actually going to match every dollar that the community raises. So we have a lot of people that are for us, rooting for us. And I do think that we have very, very high chance of success of getting another season this season. Good. Now, how has this impacted the, the rest of the school? Like what, what are you hearing from other students perhaps outside of the football program? I don't know a lot about, that but I do have a couple friends um my roommates that are on other sports teams and it's just a shame that this is happening there's they've been saying that it's not just like a blow to the SFU football team but it's a blow to the rest of the SFU athletic community because football is such a big diverse group so now to not have those like a hundred players right that make up SFU athletics it's just like a big loss and it just everyone just feels 
very upset over the situation. Yeah, and that's a lot of what that school community is all about, too. Christy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And listen, good luck. Hope everything works out. That's Christy Elliott. Uh, Christy was the kicker for the SFU football team, now part of the coaching staff there. Remember, she made history as the only woman to, in Canada to play and score an NCAA football game, and she hadn't even started. She hadn't even ever kicked a football, played football until 2019. Her story's amazing, and now she wants that story to continue. Uh, we'll keep you posted. I know it's a pivotal week for this. There's still hope for that program, and we will continue to cover that story. This is Mornings with Simi. So right now we're going to talk about two things that seem unrelated, but turns out they might not be. On the one hand, you've got artificial intelligence and chatbots and and how that technology is accelerating at such a rapid pace and all of the stuff that goes with that. And on the other, we've got try going to City Hall and get a project approved, whether it's to build housing for yourself, whatever the case is, the permitting planning process at a City Hall, any City Hall is cumbersome and slow and people say it's broken, it needs to be fixed. Almost doesn't matter what city you live in, you're going to hear that, right? Well, these two things can actually intersect, as a matter of fact. Kelowna is planning to use artificial intelligence to speed up the permitting process for housing construction and renovations. They've actually partnered with Microsoft for this. They want to develop an AI kind of chatbot that can receive and analyze applications to do the basics, like to be a a plan checker, I guess, and make sure that applications are in compliance, maybe even issue permits. I am fascinated by this. Joining us now is Doug Gilchrist, Chief Administrative Officer for the City of Kelowna. Doug, thanks for joining us. Good morning, Timmy. Thanks for having me. This is brilliant. Doug, who came up with this idea? Well, it's a whole group of uh, innovators uh, here at the city who are excited about doing this kind of work. And uh, we've been trying to advance and have been advancing kind of the processing of, of developments for, for many years. And this is just uh, one new tool to help us do that. Okay, so tell me about the process. What's involved in this? Well, um, maybe if I could just take you back for uh, quickly for a, for a minute. Um, you know, some of the accelerating uh, of building permits is is um, uh, isn't really that difficult. And, and you, we do, you know, three-week turnarounds on single-family homes. We've done 24-hour building permits for small renovations for five or six years. Um, it's really having the, the culture and energy to try and find um, kind of shortcuts and innovations. Um, this tool, I think, is really interesting in that, uh, you know, we started with uh, looking at what people can do on their properties uh, making sure that we're that they have a good, clear understanding of what's possible. So linking the information related to our official community plans, the building codes, lot parameters, um, zoning rights, all of those things, so that people clearly understand what's possible. You know, that was the first thing, layering in our, our GIS information and all that type of stuff and making it available to the public. And then you get a, a better um, application or better understanding from the public process so there's not a lot lack of communication isn't there right okay because my understanding is that like when you when i apply let's say i come to city hall and i submit some plans and i say this is what i want to do somebody has to manually check all that to make sure i'm in compliance right uh yeah so sometimes you come in for a pre-application and somebody would walk you through it if it's kind of a mom and pop developer if it's a more experienced developer they, you know, they hopefully have some experts on their team that, that do that background work. But this uh, providing that information in a more user-friendly format with a guided experience, like with a chatbot, 
uh, was the first uh, is the first key step so you can have this guided experience through the development process but the real magic happens and this is kind of the stage we're at for uh, launching hopefully for 2024 is the real magic starts to happen when you submit something electronically that then gets reviewed electronically for compliance um, because it's it's much more instantaneous than going through a process where we have to look at something manually or you know convert digital imagery into something that can be read by a human um, it'll be uh, reviewed digitally um, and whether or not there's uh, compliance or errors or things like that will be instantaneous. So people can have a response back and go and make uh, corrections if necessary. Um, and then ultimately, if there's things that get submitted, uh, really on, you know, we'll start off with relatively simple things like a single family home. If they're 100% compliant with all OCP, zoning, building code, fire code, all of those uh, uh, compliance requirements, um, then the idea is that there could be an instantaneous approval. Okay, this is cool. Has any other municipality thought about doing this? Uh, well, I'm certainly talking with lots of my colleagues who are starting to give more thought to artificial intelligence and chatbots and things like that for their services. Um, but as far as I know, we're the first to be as far along as we are. Okay, and so when you say far along, how far along is that exactly? Uh, well, we have layered in a bunch of the data. We've connected things to to, to the chatbot. So people can get information and we're working, not haven't turned it on to the public yet, but we have um, been, been utilizing it in the background already. So uh, we're hoping by uh, 2024, they'll be able to start looking at uh, permit issuance on, uh, on smaller stuff using AI and chatbot. Um, the guided experience model where you can go on and get a guided experience through the process uh, will be happening this year. Okay, so when you say it's kind of been running in the background, you've been testing it out, what has been your experience with it? Like, how's it working? It's amazing. It's above and beyond what we anticipated. It's incredible how quickly, when you point uh, the GPT as an example to uh, data sets, the amount of information you can get and how quickly you can get it. For example, we would uh, we, we asked last week, uh, what would be, uh, what, what could we develop on this particular piece of property? That was the extent of the, the request into the system. And we got a you know, one-pager back that said these are the compliant uses, these are the limitations to height, um, the restrictions for setback, all the information someone would need to put together a development consideration on a property. And this was within a comprehensive development zone, which is a unique zone in, in our city. Well, that sounds like it could free up a lot of time for people then to, so stuff that is flagged, you could then send for, to somebody to deal with in person, right? Absolutely. I mean, I heard just a moment ago on your show, a, a consideration around the, the strength or the labor market and staff shortages. And this is the efficiencies that we're really looking towards to, you know, to keep pace with growth here in Kelowna and where we have labor challenges, you know, demographically or otherwise. This should be a real efficiency that uh, we're excited about. Right. I think anybody who's also applied for something, if you built a house, um, you, you always wonder about like, well, is this planner being more of a stickler perhaps than somebody else that I talk to? Or you just don't know somebody having a bad day. You feel like this got approved. Somebody else might have let it go. Does this kind of take that subjectivity out of it? Yeah, I, I don't think we're perhaps as, as dramatic as that. I mean, I think, I think you get pretty consistent service regardless of who you get here because we have a pretty high level of um, quality assurance. Um, but certainly it does, uh, it does help with that issue. And I think that would be, uh, you know, province-wide 
consistency as opposed to even just city to city. Has the other thing it allows for that I think is really important here, um, and this goes well beyond planning approvals or building permit approvals, but in all kinds of other services, is it turns municipalities into 24-hour service. Um, you know, many of our, our services run 8 to 12 hours, some, some 24 in the case of fire service, but access by the public to our services uh, now becomes 24-7. Has it been expensive? Like, how, how much is this costing? Um, relative to the cost of those overall services or the labor costs, uh, no, it hasn't been expensive. Um, now, we've been supported by some uh, provincial grants because there's an interest there, obviously, to accelerate housing approvals. And we're hopeful to continue to get that to evolve this stuff. But uh, no, I think when you think of the cost of operating a city, the value of housing, uh, the time, the value of time to the people that are using our services, it's a relatively low cost. I think this is genius, Doug. Good job. I can't wait to hear more about it. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. That is Doug Gilchrist, who's the Chief Administrative Officer for the City of Kelowna. So they took some of this BC government grant money, which they have been handing out to municipalities, and decided they were going to put it towards streamlining the permitting process by using AI. So they have partnered with Microsoft to develop this kind of AI chatbot that will receive and analyze applications for compliance and issue permits. Uh, They believe in Kelowna that they are the first municipality in Canada to do this, maybe even North America, to to pilot an approach like this. So the bot essentially understands zoning bylaws, understands official community plans, uh, the particulars of your lot, the setbacks of your lot, like you name it, and will essentially let you know, is that in compliance? No, you need to fix this. You might be able to do this. Why don't you try this? And can do this. And as as Doug pointed out there, can work 24-7, right? You don't need to wait until City Hall is open and go down there and talk to somebody. And, and maybe, you know, some you know that one person is more lenient than another person. Like people who go down to City Hall all the time, they know that, right? That you just depends sometimes on who you talk to with the answers that you get chatbot kind of takes that out of the picture. Now, what do you think? I I think it's a great idea. This would be great if you can get people to just know that, hey, no complications here. I'm following all the rules. Why can't I just get this approved quickly? Well, this would help you do that.